today we're back in Ephesians. So I hope you have your Bibles open already. Ephesians 6, verse 17. I, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. When it comes time to read the Scripture, I'm not even going to ask you to stand up because it's a very short phrase in there. But I call this today, What is Your Head Worth? And uh, it might sound silly, but we're on the part of the armor that is the last so-called defensive armor. As people talk about putting on the armor of God, and uh, you can read a bunch of different stuff about it, and, and all that's, you know, most of it's good as far as I know. Uh, it, it, they always say, well, these are the defensive parts of armor, and these are the offensive parts of armor. And next week we get to the one that everybody says, this is the only offensive weapon, and it's the sword. And I'm excited about talking about the Word of God tomorrow, next week. Uh, I, I try to preach from the Word of God every week, and be doing that next week, but talk about the Word of God next week. But anyway... But I, I struggle with that a little bit for this reason. I don't know any defensive weapon that can't be turned into an offensive weapon. I mean, if I crown you with a shield, it's going to hurt. Right? If I take a shield and just knock you in the head, that's painful. That became offensive. Amen? You'll be offended if I hit you like that. I can guarantee it. There was a phone commercial some years back now, and it was a brand new phone, and it was supposed to be the latest thing, and the guy's in a locker room with his friend talking about it, and the other friend's not being sold on it, and he says, and besides all that, you can use it as a weapon. The guy goes, really? And he picks it up and hits him in the head with a pow. So anything can be turned into an offensive weapon. I don't think God meant for us to put on the armor just to cower back and try to defend the best defense is a good offense. We ought to be out there attacking with all the things we're already wearing. Right? The, girl, the, bur, the, uh, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All these things and the, and the shield of faith. Man, we ought to be advancing with those things. They are just protection as we advance. See, when we talk about being defensive, I get this idea of a guy back here in the corner going, don't hit me. You know, we're supposed to be marching forward, right? Okay. Well, that's the setup. All right. So today we come to the helmet of salvation. All right. And I, I had a good friend. The reason I know I, I was hoping that sounded a little silly. I meant for it to just be kind of like, what's he talking about? What is your head worth? Uh, the reason I wrote that, my best friend uh, used to be a motocross racer. And uh, he was in the top 10 in North South Carolina uh, when he was like 12 and 13 years old. And then he got saved, and his family got saved, and they quit racing, not because they thought it was sinful, but because they only raced on Sundays. And so they quit. But back when they did it, his dad even owned a, a motorcycle shop under their house. Uh, it's built on stilts because it was on Isle of Palms, and that's why I was, he was my best friend, because I could go to the beach at his house. Um, just kidding. But, um, but, it, but it, it was, underneath was this motorcycle shop, and they had an old poster in there, and the poster was produced by a company known as Bell. And Bell makes helmets, among other things. So it was a poster for Bell helmets, a motorcycle helmet. And, the, the, and this was back in the 70s. So, you know, I know I'm reaching back. But on that poster, it said this. If your head is worth $10, wear a $10 helmet. If your head is worth more, wear a Bell. In other words, if your head is worth nothing, don't wear anything. And the Bible's telling us to put on a helmet, and the, hel the helmet is called salvation. All right, now I'm going to read the scripture. I tell you, now I'm going to ask you to stand. stand. Look at verse 17, because this is a problem. It says, and take the helmet of salvation. I said you didn't have to stand, but I appreciate that you did. But that's okay. You can stand. That's fine. I stand up when other people don't anyway. And so he's telling us, take the helmet of salvation. Now, here's the problem. That's all it says. You can sit back down. That's all I'm going to read. Uh, 
Or you can stand up the whole service. I don't care. It's, but truly, it does not bother me. But, um, but here's the problem. That's all it says. In the other parts of the armor, there's a hint at what he's going after. So when you start reading different commentaries, and by the way, I encourage the use of commentaries. I encourage the use of good commentaries, not bad ones. But I also warn you of this. You know what a commentary is? It's what some guy thought about it. Uh, a technical commentary is pretty good where you can get down to what the language really meant and means and all that stuff. But the point is, we don't get any other hint here. He just says, in the helmet of salvation, and keeps going. And here's the deal. So, what does he mean by that? And there's one thing that we kind of obviously want to jump to that I have to warn against. And that is this. And let me illustrate it before I say what it is. You've, you've heard, read... Revelation, I think it's 3.20. I didn't look it back up, but I think it's 3.20, 3.23. I think it's 3.20. Where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in, sup with him and eat with me. Right? And we always talk about that. Jesus knocking on the door. How do most Christians use that verse in life? Thank you. About salvation. Let me point it out. He was talking to the church. He was talking to save people when he said that. He's not inviting you to salvation. What he's inviting you to is intimacy with him. And so often the church has put him on the outside instead of bringing him on the inside. And that's why we don't even have a clue what we're supposed to be doing. Because we're not having intimate conversations with him. That's why I'm so grateful for a call to prayer. We ought to be having intimate conversations with Christ. Now he speaks to us through the word. But we speak to him in prayer. And he illuminates the word to us through the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. Amen. So, uh, being where I'm from, there was, a, there was an old story, and you don't know where I'm from, from Charleston, South Carolina. In the 1980s, uh, only Charleston and, and Washington, D.C. had, it, it, well, I'm not, well, anyway, I'm going to get into too much detail. Let me just say um, that there are, it was one of the only two cities in America that had more African Americans than whites in the city itself population. So, I grew up in a place that was very split diverse, Okay. And uh, my high school, I went to 60% African-American, 40% white. So I was in a minority. I was a minority student. And, uh, but there was an old joke in that community, and it went like this, that an African-American guy went to a predominantly white church, you know, something like ours. And they didn't want him in there, so they ran him out, and he was sitting out on the front stairs, kind of sad that, you know, the church had thrown him out. And the Lord came and sat beside him and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, I wanted to go to church, but they wouldn't let me in. He said, they hadn't let me in in years. <laughs> it's kind of a nice little way of saying what ought to be said there. But here's the deal. Lord wants to come into our life, right? This verse is not talking to lost people. It's talking to Christians. He's not telling us to get saved. He's telling us to use our salvation in our fight against the enemy. It, is, it really comes down to basic encouragement. Because I want you to think about this Roman helmet for a second. In those terms, it might start helping. He's wearing a helmet. Why? Well, because when you're in a fight, you've got a shield and a sword. And so does your enemy, right? It's one of the rules of war. When your enemy's in range, so are you. So if you're going to fight, just remember that when you get close enough to engage, they are close enough to engage. All right? So they're out there fighting, and you've got a shield... Again, you're not going to hide behind the shield so you can't see and fight like this. 
and hope you hit something, you're going to pull it down, kind of look over it, and try to hit. So as you get to eye level, top of your head's exposed, and the enemy's going to try to take the top of your head off. It's going to mess up the way you think. Right? So Paul looks at that helmet, and he refers it back to salvation. What you think about salvation can encourage you and strengthen you against the blows of the enemy as you're fighting with that shield of faith and you're coming in for a blow, you've exposed the top of your head and the devil wants to stop you before you create a blow against him. So it affects the way you think. Because let me, here's the phrase I want you to take home with you today. You can go ahead and flip it now, thanks. The fight is over our way of thinking. If the devil can change the way you think, he can change what you do. Your emotions and your actions are tied up in the way of thinking. And let me just tell you, I, well, I'm scared of heights to start with. But if I got on the roof of this building, I would not jump off because you know what I think? I think if I did, I'd get hurt. Now, if I was delusional or altered in some way, I might think I could fly. We know I can't. But I might think that way and do something that would cause me harm. But as long as I can think clearly, I am not going to intentionally put myself in harm's way. And so another reason we respect firefighters, police, military, is they intentionally put themselves in harm's way, not for their sake, but for ours. So we appreciate that. But that's that's just the deal. So my thinking alters how I perceive or how I feel about something and let me illustrate that I use the same illustration every time and uh, brother Bobby's here I I used him earlier I'm going to use him again so Bobby's out there in the parking lot Bobby Sims he's right here on the second row everybody see wave at him Bobby they're looking for you there he is amen thank you brother he helped me out a lot the first service so brother Bobby's standing out there in the parking lot and he hears footsteps and he looks up and I'm coming at him full speed and boom, I give him a body blow and knocks him on his keister. Knocks me almost off. I'm coming down too. And the, the logical next thing he's going to do is come to his feet and go to hit me. Because he's angry. But as he's trying to scramble to his feet, he sees the speeding car go by where he was just standing. And suddenly his anger turns to gratefulness. Because he changed the way he thought about it. Let me just tell you, I can't make you mad and you can't make me mad. I choose to be angry. Because the way I think about what you just did or said. Period. So I tell people, you can't make me mad. You can, you can mean to make me mad, but you still won't make me mad. <laughs> because I choose not to. It's a choice you make. It's an interpretation. Okay? I, I, I'm struggling with whether to go on with that, but I'll be chasing a fat rabbit. So I'll leave that alone for a second. But the way you think, and, you, and so if you find yourself in a tough situation and you take a step back and go, how do I want to think about that? I, I will go ahead with an example. I had a, a deacon many, many years ago. We were first married. Janice uh, was expecting our first baby. And uh, it was a small little tiny church, country church, early in our ministry. And... Uh, we're on the porch after a deacon's meeting, and, and we had just, she had just delivered Savannah. And, uh, and I was great, you know, we were grateful. And he looked at me, and this was a good friend and a good guy, and he said, so are we going to start seeing your wife doing more around here now? Yeah. 
And my first reaction was punch him, but I didn't. Because there's this pesky verse in the Bible about preachers not being brawlers, so I can't do things like that. It's very frustrating. But anyway. So, but my next thought was, that's not him. That's not how he is. So I didn't even say anything. I said, well, you know, yeah, I hope, you know, because she'd been sick. She was sick every day. She was pregnant with Savannah. She threw up every day. She could eat watermelon and McDonald's french fries, and the McDonald's was 10 miles away. So it's a lot of watermelon. So anyway, <laughs> thankfully God had put us in the middle of a watermelon patch while she was pregnant. And it was the deacon from the slave church, from the church we pastored. And if you don't know what a slave church is, that's a church that was formed after the war between the states. And, and he said, preacher... Give your wife all the watermelon you want. I said, thank you, brother. I just got to cut a watermelon. She'd eat it. But anyway, just had to tell you all that so you get the context. But anyway, I just didn't say anything. I just said, yeah, well, you know, I hope so. You know, you know within a week, he came back and he said, you know, I, I don't know what came over me. I don't know why I said it. He apologized. And he, he told me he was going through something. I don't know what. But just something welled up in him. He just said something he really wasn't his heart. Well, if I'd have just gotten angry, I'd have lost a brother. So I decided to accept that, you know, that's not him, so I'm not, I'm not going to get mad. I'm just going to let him figure it out for himself. And he did. And so sometimes that helps. You know, the Bible says that soft answer turns away wrath, right? And so sometimes the way you react to something affects the situation, so you have to learn to interpret it correctly. Well, in this fight of spiritual warfare, you better interpret correctly the situation. We are at war. That's what war, and, and war stands for, we are ready. The devil wants to kill us, he wants to steal from us, he wants to destroy us. And we're in a fight over the souls of men, and the way you think about that will affect how you, how you act about that. So if as a church you think, hey, if I throw money at it, and other people will go do all the witnessing and, and all the Christian living... It'll be okay, and all I got to do is come to church, give my money, listen, preach, sing, whatever, and go home, then you're in trouble. Because you, if you are a Christian, you have an enemy that wants to see your utter destruction. And if you don't fight, you will lose by default. So a lot of people are afraid, oh, I don't want to get in the fight. Friend, you're in the fight. question is, are you active or are you just getting beat up? Wow. So, let me, let me tell you some things here. First of all, Satan's blows are aimed at our assurance and security. If Satan's going to change the way you think, what he wants you to not think is that you're saved. He wants to create doubt in your mind about whether you're saved because the devil can't take your salvation away. Some people believe that you can be saved and then lose it and then you get it back. Hebrews says, if you could get it and lose it, you can't get it back. People use that text to say, oh, see, you can lose your salvation. No, the text is saying, this is how secure your salvation is. If you lose it, you're never getting it back because there's only one time and that's it. All right, but we, we won't discuss that. That's another thing because people are going to come to me later and go, how about this verse in Hebrews? Because it always happens, so I'll, I'll help you with it if you want to do that. But here's a verse, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have temporary life. Right? Well, what did it say? Oh, so God didn't mean what he said. No, of course he did. If he gives you life, it's everlasting. But see, in John 6, 37 and 39, which, go, go ahead and turn there. I was going to get in a big hurry. If you get done before I do, you can leave. 
John 6, 37 and 39. Somebody's going to leave too, I know. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that insultingly. Um, 37 to 39, uh, listen to what it says. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I came down, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who the Father gives me, I will not cast out. Jesus is all about doing the will of the Father. And then he expounds on that in verse 38. And look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. It is the will of God and the work of Jesus not to lose you. So he won't. In another place, Jesus said that we're held, the Bible says we're held in the Father's hands. Heard a preacher say, if you're in God's hands, that means you're in the hand of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And for the devil to be able to get to you, he's got to come through the Trinity. And if the devil could get through the Trinity, he'd be a saved devil. He can't get to you. You say, well, what about suffering in my life? We'll cover that in a second. So, and understand, the hope of our salvation is not that I feel saved. The hope of our salvation is that I am saved, that I have the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1.13, this very book, just turn back to the first chapter. We've already preached on it way back in the day. And, uh, and here's what it says. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And if you've got King James, it says earnest. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what that phrase actually literally means. If you ever bought a house, you understand it. It's called earnest money or a down payment. Okay, but it's not really a down payment, it's earnest money. Now, if you're young and you've never bought a house, let me tell you how it works. You go, your agent or you find a house, you get a real estate agent, they help you out. You make, the people are asking so much money, you make a counter offer, what you think you can afford. And uh, they're a little high, you're a little low, so some, you finally figure it out, meet in the middle. Go, yeah, I think we can handle that. They say, okay, we'll let it go for that. And so you say, tell your agent, I agree to that price. And the agent says, where's your thousand dollars? So you stroke him a check for a thousand bucks, and that's called earnest money. Young people, let me tell you what that means. You give him that check for a thousand dollars, they hold it in an account waiting, and if you go ahead and buy the house, they apply it to the price of the house. But if in between you find another house you like better, and you go back and say, No, we don't want this house, we want this other house, we've changed our mind, you don't get your thousand dollars back. So you're not likely to change your mind. Now their dirty little secret is the people selling the house can go, it's okay, give them their money back, and you can get it back. But it's their money. If they don't want to give it back, they ain't getting it back. You're not getting it back. You, you lost $1,000. So you better be really sure when you put that money down. God said, here's my down payment. Here's my earnest money. I'll let the Holy Spirit live in you. I don't want, I don't want salvation. Too bad. I can't take it back. I cannot take the Holy Spirit back. He is in you. Even if you want out, he won't get out. Because it's God's promise to buy. And God doesn't break his promises. Amen. I thought that was good too. Thank you whoever said that. I appreciate it. 
I wish I'd have thought of it. I've stole that from somebody. I don't know who, but that's good stuff. That's because I didn't say it. See, some of you today, maybe you came to a point where you were saved, and now you think, oh, I'm not sure. Or you're not sure you ever got saved. And, and many of us have that feeling. Many of us go through that. I've gone through that. Many other people go through that. And I will say this on your behalf. It is better to have an honest doubt than to have a false sureness. Because it makes you examine it. But, but let me just tell you, we can, you can settle it right now. If you want to be saved and you're not sure you are, all you got to do right now is say, Lord, I really am just surrendering everything to you. I repent of all my sin. I give you all of my life, whatever I have been, are going to be, whatever. It's all yours. Take me. I just want to have you in my life right now. And he'll be there. I promise. He said, if you come to me, I won't throw you away. And so you can have that today. Secondly, so Satan, how does he deal with it? Since he can't take our salvation, what does he do? He creates doubt and discouragement. Very first thing Satan ever did in attacking human beings, and he did it to Adam and Eve, is he said, did God really say that? He cast doubt. And so you're out there, you're obeying the word of God, and, and, and then the devil throws a, hmm, I'm just not sure. If you are not sure, it causes hesitation. If you hesitate, you lose. Right? You know, sometimes if you do the wrong thing with confidence, you get through it anyway. <laughs> and, and, and so, Satan wants to hit you so that you will doubt. But see, Satan never quits. So we have to be eternally vigilant. Even God takes a vacation. Six days he made things, seventh day took a break. Right? Right? <laughs> Jesus had come apart and rest a while. You can't go 24-7. 365. It's impossible. You have to have a break. It's just human condition. Satan never takes a break. That's why he's Satan. He's always after us. He, he never stops. So we have to be eternally vigilant. See, if we're saved, it's not a life of passivity. Oh, I'm saved. I can relax. It's a life of aggressive obedience to all of God's commands. God wants us to be aggressive in serving him. The Bible says... That we can prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in Romans 12, 1. Because we get the mind of Christ. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Once he saves you, he wants... Let me explain it. Here's salvation. Let me use my life as an example. Eight years old, I stood in front of a church. And I said, Jesus is Lord. And I believe God raised him from the dead. And I accepted Jesus into my life. And so I was saved. Right? This morning, the alarm clock went off at 5 o'clock. And I said, oh, Lord, it's morning. I didn't feel saved, and so God had to keep saving me. And then I got up, and he started working on me, you know, and got here, and we sang some good songs and prayed for church, all that stuff. And God just started working on me. And my feelings followed, but the fact that this, today God is still saving me, because there's some times I don't feel so saved, or, you know, but God just encouraged me to keep going. And there's coming a day, and I don't know when it'll be. It could be today. It could be 10 years, 20 years. It could be next week. I don't know. Where I'm, this body is not going to make it any longer, and I'm, I'm going to die. Guess what? That day I will be saved. Now, there are three big theological words for this, and I'm just going to give them to you in case you hear somebody say it because they're trying to sound all big, big shots. Somebody gets paid just to think up big words to describe simple things, okay? Sanct, uh, this is justification. When I got saved, it was just as if my sins had been paid for by me, but instead they were paid for by Christ. 
God, Jesus paid the price for my sins. And he applied it to my account and I was justified. This morning when I got up, I got being sanctified. He was making his image in me. And as I behold Jesus, I got up, I started reading the scripture. One of the first things I was doing this morning. Got into God's word. As I'm studying it, man, God's forming his, the image of Christ in me. And he was sanctifying me, which is a big word for holy. It's making me more like Jesus. One day when I die, I will go to glory. And I will be glorified. Glorification. Sanctification, I mean, justification, sanctification, glorification. Big words, just in case somebody tries to, you go, I know what those mean. Our preacher explained them to me. All right, so you don't have to worry about that. We get more and more like Jesus. And, and here's the deal. God never tries to get you to do something he doesn't provide for you. Look real quickly. Turn two books over to Colossians. The next book is Philippians. Then look at Colossians chapter 3. Just, again, to illustrate something. God always gives provision before he gives obligation. All right, so it's just illustrated in in Colossians 3. Verse 3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let me ask a question. Who died in verse 3? What does it say? You. You died. Who you were in Adam died. Here I am. I was born July 21st, 1959, 518 in the morning, weighing 8 pounds, 15 ounces, 21 inches long. I came into the world. I was born in the likeness of Adam. In June of 1968, as an eight-year-old boy, seven, eight-year-old boy, whatever I was in that, that month, I was born again into the kingdom of God. And what I was died. And what I am was born. Follow that so far? So my, my sinful nature has been put to death. I've been given a new nature, the nature of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes living in me and gives me a new nature. Now look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Hey, whoa, time out. Anybody see the contradiction? I thought I died. What's this put to death stuff? Yeah, the penalty of my sin was put to death at eight years old. I'm still living in a mortal body in a sinful world, and the draw is, the default is always back to sin, because we live in a fallen world. I've got a new nature, but that nature has to exercise its will to put to death the things that I shouldn't do, right? Even Paul says in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death, right? Y'all do know that, right? Y'all do read scripture, right? Good, y'all read it every day, I, I, I It'd be good for it. And so God gives a provision, but then he has an obligation. The provision in Colossians 3 is he, he put to death what you could not do. He put to death your nature that was in Adam. And he gave you a new nature that is Christ. And now, because you, the, Romans 6, 6 says he's broken the power of sin, that you won't be the slave of sin. Now you have the power not to do what you want to do, but to have the power to do what you ought to do. But you have to, uh, you got to work with God in that. You got to receive His grace, His power in order to obey Him. And so as you receive it, you obey. Well, that's an illustration of what the helmet of salvation does. Because I'm saved, because I was saved, I'm being saved. And if Satan gave me a headshot today that took me out of here, I will be saved. So what does it matter? What does it matter where I go and what I do when I'm doing it for the Lord? It doesn't. It, my personal safety means nothing. 
My personal desires mean nothing. My personal will means nothing. Everything is for the glory of God. Everything goes to Him. And the helmet of salvation lets me know as I face battle. If you are not scared going into battle, something's wrong with you. But when you overcome, courage is being afraid and saddling up anyway, John Wayne said, right? So you just saddle up, pull, you know, put on your big boy pants, saddle up and go. Cowboy up. Right? <laughs> I don't think I can say it in the pulpit, so I won't. You know, brace up, cupcake. Come on. Because God has given you salvation, now you've got an obligation to use the assurance that you're going to heaven to keep working. Because Satan wants to discourage you and he wants to create doubt. And so he comes against you. Somebody in here, may, you may be wading through hell by the acre and can't figure out why. And I don't know why either. But I know, do know this, that God has a plan for you. He's got an a, 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 a end in mind, and he's creating the image of Christ in you. And as you don't get discouraged and quit, as you keep moving forward, he's forming the image of Christ in you. And one day you get to heaven, you go, oh, because we sang about this morning, we talked about this morning, you're going to be here for 60, 70, if you're lucky, 80 years. Some of you passed that already, and that's fine, that's great, that's wonderful. But nobody's going to be here in 100 years. We're all going to be dead. So what is that in light of eternity? And if you lived only yourself, you're going to be real disappointed when you get there. And so we can endure because we know where we're headed. Remember Jesus talked about a broad way and a narrow way? He said, hey, the broad way is easy. You can find the entrance. You can, it's a broad road. There's, it's smooth. It's easy. Do you know there are churches on the broad way? I knew of a church called Broadway Baptist Church. I think I would have changed the name. But anyway... There, I'm not saying Broadway is a bad church. It's actually a very good church. But, but there are churches on the Broadway. You can be religious and be on the Broadway going to hell. Because religion won't get you to heaven. Jesus says, then there's the narrow way. It's hard to find the way. It's rocky. It's hard. It's difficult to get there. But there's two reasons you ought to take that route instead of the easy route. Number one, who goes with you? He's, he does. Yeah, Jesus does. So he's always with you. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's always there. And there's an end to the road. And the end of the road is heaven. The Broadway ends in hell. So you can take it easy here on earth. Or you can follow Jesus. And his way, many times, is not the easy way. So, what can you do? Well, I would say daily thank God. And claim for yourself your salvation. If you've got a doubt, settle it. And if at some point you become convinced, I really wasn't saved, and I know a lot of people that's happened, they did a religious thing, they felt pressured by their parents or their friends, or it was just a religious thing to do and whatever, and they really didn't mean it. Now, just because you didn't understand everything doesn't mean you got saved. My kids have been my kids, and they didn't understand a lot of things, but they were still my kids, right? And they've grown, they've learned some things, and they'll keep doing that. I'm still learning what it meant to be my my parents' child. And they're both dead and in heaven now. They're not dead. They're alive and in heaven now, but their bodies are dead. So I keep growing in understanding. Doesn't mean I'm any more saved then. I'm just to save that first day as an eight-year-old boy as I am today as I will be then. 
It's just a process God has us in, though. So every day get up and just thank God for it if you, if you know you got it. Just say, Lord, today the devil's going to try to knock me in the head and make me doubt that you're my king and my God. But the Holy Spirit is in me. Down payment, you're not taking him back. Let's go on with you. Secondly, don't quit. Fight back by aggressive obedience. When you're tempted to do something that's not scriptural, and you know God's told you different, I'm going to do what God said because God lives in me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. And thirdly, look for the process. Look to the process and the product. You see, the process is what kills us. Because, as I said, I'm from the coast. I, and, and I mentioned my buddy grew up on the Isle of Palms. Behind the Isle of Palms on the coast of South Carolina is the international, intercoastal waterway. And you don't know what that is. Some of you may not. But it's a waterway that goes from the top of the country all the way down to the bottom of the country. And it's an inland waterway for ships to go. Keeps them out of the rough seas on the, uh, off the coast. So many ships use that waterway. But Pleasure Crafts can use all that. We went out there in a, in a, a kayak and strung a gill net out there. And we would go out there and collect fish and stuff. But there's marsh all around, and I've tried to walk through a marsh. Don't ever try to mark, walk through a marsh with flip-flops on. Because <laughs> you will leave them about this deep in the, in the mud, and who knows what happens to them. I don't know. But don't walk without something on, because you'll step on an oyster shell or glass or something and catch yourself. And can you imagine trying to run a 50-yard dash in the marsh mud? <laughs> And some of you are going through life, and that's the feeling you got. I can't get going. I can't get ahead. I keep getting knocked back. It's a process. How do you get through that process? Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. See, Jesus has already won the victory, and what he's doing is he's doing this. Come on, you can make it. Keep going. Don't concentrate on the process. Concentrate on the goal. And know that as you endure the process, God is working in your life. So to get through it, you got to look at the goal. Because every step you take, no matter how fast you take it, you're closer to the goal, right? And then thirdly, I would say, oh, that was the third one, sorry. I just want you to understand, there is an end in sight. There is an end in sight. And it's heaven. And that's why every day you ought to meet with Jesus. Because he is the reward. You know, as a church, in Philippians, he says, Have this mind in you that is also in Christ Jesus. Have that same mind. That we ought to have the mind that we're not important, but he is and each other is. And we ought to work together to know that Lost people get saved, and saved people grow in Him. Amen? And we got to quit worrying about what we want. we got to worry about what God wants. And as long as we have these divergent desires that we demand, when we demand our divergent desires, I didn't know it was alliterated until just now, but that's a good one. As we demand our divergent desires, we create chaos. But as we, as we unite around the mind of Christ, we create Energy and strength and power. And so we need to have that helmet of salvation. No, I am saved. I'm going to be saved. I don't have to worry about it. I can move forward because the devil can't beat that. He cannot defeat that. There's nothing he can do to take that away.